Our scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know, know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Thank you, Mike, for reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is going to set the stage uh, for where we will be in the book of Ephesians for our sermon text. So if you want to, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, my name is George Olmstead. I serve as one of the staff pastors here at Fellowship, and I have the opportunity to, to share God's word with you this morning. And we're continuing our series entitled true church. And so what we're doing is we walk verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And, and today we find ourselves, like I said, in Ephesians chapter two, we'll be in verses one through seven. So while you're finding your place there, I'll share a quick story with you. Uh, there was a, a young boy who uh, was raised and grew up in the Baltimore, Maryland area. And uh, he had lived a very normal everyday life. He, he was the son of a fireman who was uh, married to a corner neighborhood bar waitress. He would spend his time on the inlets of the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay uh, setting crab traps as well as just hanging out in the neighborhood. Uh, here's the thing. He would, he would go to school just like every other child during the school year. And in the summers, he would make trips to uh, uh, Ocean City, Maryland to spend time on the beach uh, and enjoy the summer. And as he grew older, he, uh, into his early teen years, he would spend the afternoons and the evenings helping his mom bust tables at the corner bar. And so there he learned to throw darts and to play pool and to socialize with people. And uh, when it came time to graduate, his father gave him three options. Go to college, get a job, or go to the military. But whatever three you pick, just understand the option of sticking around here is not an option. So some of you laugh like you've heard that story before. During his childhood and teen years, he, he was never really introduced to God. He wasn't uh, introduced to the church. He, he wasn't given a, a healthy view of marriage. And he definitely wasn't in an environment where living a life well-pleasing to the Lord was even on the radar. And, and according to the world, he wasn't what they would call a bad kid. He, as a matter of fact, uh, just was living the natural life. Uh, well, here's the deal. He made the decision to sign up for the army. He went away to boot camp that he came home back to Maryland, married his high school sweetheart, and they set off for a journey of a 
lifetime. And so fast forward just a few years, and uh, he's now married with a newborn son, and, and this man takes a job uh, as a police officer in a small Texas town, uh, many miles away from his family uh, that were there and his friends on the northeast coast. But uh, one day, while in that small town in Texas, he gets a knock on his door, and what happens is, is there's a person inviting him to church. Well, he responds with absolutely zero interest at all, has no desire. And matter of fact, says, hey, I'd appreciate it if you don't knock again and, and don't invite us again. And uh, well, at the same time, his wife decides to uh, accept the invitation, attends the church, hears the gospel presented, repents, places her faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and is saved. Well, fast forward a few more years, and this same man is living his same life and just according to the world and his wife and son are going to church and uh, at the uh, begging and the, 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 hey, you've got to come. He finally relents and he attends church with his family. Uh, you know, after attending for about a year, he, he also has heard the gospel. And at that moment, the Lord moves in his life and he repents and he professes faith and places his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you fast forward to today, he, uh, there's a transformation from this unsaved man to the saved man that has impacted the life of his family like nothing else ever did or has. As a matter of fact, that man in this story is my father, and that's his testimony. That decision to follow Christ, now my mom following Christ definitely changed our lives. But when dad entered the picture of following Christ, let me tell you something. It set a new course for our home. You know, I was raised in church since I was two, but I remember five, six, seven years old and my dad leading us spiritually. And that decision to follow Christ has given our family that opportunity to experience and live out the riches of God's grace and mercy. As a matter of fact, his three boys are saved and many of his grandkids have already saved and serving the Lord and I don't share this story with you this morning to make anything about the Olmstead family, but I, I share this with you because every believer, every believer, every Christian has a testimony of how God transformed you from the old man to the new man. And it is a story worth sharing with others. This morning, we look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, and we get the opportunity to dive into Scripture to see how the testimony of the Christian is built upon the saving promise of God. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We'll look at the testimony of the Christian. As a matter of fact, if you want to pick up with me, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your offenses and sins. Boy, it starts out great, doesn't it? Paul's desire is for the reader to understand that we are born under a sin curse due to the sin of Adam in the garden. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.12 states and, and helps us understand, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Every person who has been born of this world or will be born of this world cannot escape this sin curse. We are literally spiritually dead due to our trespasses and our sin. As a matter of fact, Paul uses these terms very specifically, and it helps make it clear about how truly far apart we are from God when we enter into this world. As a matter of fact, sin's meaning is to miss the mark. 
You know, and, and most people have an inaccurate concept of sin. What, what do we think of when we hear sin? Let's just be honest. We kind of think of the, of the big ones, right? Maybe it's a murder or robbery or, or rape or drunkenness. But you know what? We don't think of the average good guy as a sinner, do we? Sin is not necessarily violent, though, and so we have to understand it's actually a failure to come up to a standard. A person, here's the deal, they may often uh, reach the mark of human goodness, but since he or she cannot reach the mark of God's perfect holiness, they are still a sinner. As a matter of fact, Romans 3.23 allows us to, to even embed this more upon our truths, is that it tells us, for all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. The meaning of trespasses or offense here is speaking to travel on the wrong road. We are traveling on a different road than God's road. As a matter of fact, it's uh, very common as you drive past businesses or properties or in the neighborhood that you'll see a no trespassing sign, right? And we see that and we understand that, hey, if you, are, if you cross that line and you decide to take that road, you're on the wrong road. You're in the wrong place. You're somewhere that you are uh, not welcomed and not desired to be. And, and so we see this, that that trespass, it's a warning that you were on the wrong road, a road that you shouldn't be on. However, because sin is entered into the world and, uh, and because we are born with that curse, what Paul is saying here is that not only do we fall short, but we also go in the wrong direction. We, we try, but we miss and we go our own way. And Proverbs fourteen twelve tells us this, there is a way which seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. It, it reminisces, and it, and it sounds like Romans 6.23 tells us the same thing when it states, For the wages of sin is death. The payment of our sin is death. So, so what's the importance of these statements of, but its end is the way is death, or uh, that uh, the punishment for sin is death, or the statement of, of using the word sin and trespasses? It's important that we are dead in trespasses and sin and the fact that it's all-inclusive sin nature does one thing. It separates us from God. And here's the truth. God cannot be in the presence of sin, and God cannot glory in sin, and God cannot be okay with sin. And the culture today, just as it was in Ephesus, is telling us something different. Hey, hey, listen, we can change God. We can change the word that he has given us. But listen, we've got to start just coming up to the times. Can I tell you, God is not okay with sin. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, that's what gives us hope and allows us to not to be okay with sin. We are dead because we are separated from God, and in that, we cannot be alive. The reality is this, spiritually and physically, that one person, that, that a person is either dead or alive. And so that's the thing. This morning, spiritually, if you were in this room, you were in one of two states. You are, you are alive or you are dead. And there is no in-between. In verse chapter 2, I'm sorry, in verse chapter 2, did I just say that? I did. Awesome. Y'all weren't listening, but that's okay. Verse 2, verse 2 reads, In which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul goes on in this passage to show us that because of this sin nature that we live in as an unbeliever, we are this, we are under the influence 
of the source of sin. We are actually under the influence of the source of sin as we are dead in our trespasses. The source is the enemy, and that enemy is Satan. Let's, let's have a little quick refresher, uh, a history refresher here. Satan's name was originally Lucifer. He was the greatest of all angels and the most powerful being that, that God had ever created. And, and when he was created by God, there was nothing like him in the entire universe and in all of God's creation. If you read Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, and you, and you go all the way through 18, parts of it says this, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it goes on to talk about how beautiful Lucifer was and, and the stones he was covered in. And, but it comes to this point point. it says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And Satan was the highest rank of all, these, of, all, of all the angels created, great in power, great in rank. But Satan allowed pride to be his downfall. He managed to also convince about a third of the angels that they too should rebel. And because of that, they were cast out of heaven. We see this morning, this refresher, I I want us to understand the influence and the power of sin, but also the one who was the first to sin. And Satan, we are told in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may deny. Listen, Satan has no desire for the non-believer to hear the truth, and he definitely doesn't want the believer to continue to believe the truth. He is on a mission to take out the things of God. 1 John 5, 19 tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know this, that, the, uh, <clears throat> that this power spoken of was given to Satan by God because in Luke 4, 6, here's what it says. When Satan is tempting Jesus and the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you in their glory for this has been delivered to me and I, and I give it to whomever I wish. You see, Satan had the power and the influence over those who had not received Christ and not yet and are not yet children of God. Now, Paul tells us this: the old man is dead in his trespasses and sin. He's under the influence of the source of sin, whom is Satan. He also goes on to tell us that the old man, in verse three, we read this: among them, we too all previously lived in what the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Boy, the lust of the flesh. I mean, our nature that we are born with is to crave selfish, self-centered sin that will satisfy our temporary flesh. It'll satisfy us in the moment, yet it'll bring great harm down the road. Man, you've got lust and greed and sexual sin and gossip and drugs and violence and anger and pride and the list goes on and on if you want a reference of of what sin looks like and what it encompasses look at galatians 5 chapter i mean chapter 5 verse 19 and, and 20 and 21 and it reads this now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are what immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy outburst of anger Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. 
of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do these sins sound familiar? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, they're the characteristics of our culture today, are they not? It's been the same. Sin is sin. Sin has not changed. Why? Because, man, it just satisfies the flesh. And boy, if there's nothing else we want, it's to be satisfied. You know, this is what the old man lives for. Now, here's the deal. You might be saying, hey, I know a lot of unsaved people who are good people and do good things. And they don't struggle with the lust of the flesh. They seem to have it all together. I want you just to think for just a moment about who you were before you met Christ. Be honest and truthful about yourself. I I do this to myself all the time. Like, who was I before I met Christ? And I am quickly reminded just as I see in Romans 3, 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not even one, including George Olmstead. You are not and you were not righteous. Romans 3.23 told me because of that, uh, uh, I have sinned and I fall short of the glory of God, as we talked about a second ago. Man, the reality is everyone who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ follows the lust of, lust of the flesh. Here's why, because they have no power over it. Listen, this morning, maybe you're here and you're like, man, why can't I just overcome? Why can't I just get rid? You know? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us that we have the fruit of the Spirit and how we can overcome. But if you don't have the Spirit, you haven't met Jesus, can I just tell you out of love this morning, boy, you're not going to overcome the lust of the flesh. It's only through Christ that we have hope for that to take place. Man, the news keeps getting better if you want to keep reading in verse 3. concludes, as Paul writes, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Man, we were by nature objects of wrath. It was stated earlier, like I said in Romans 6, 23, it tells us of the wages of sin is death. That death, that wrath is that eternal separation from God. Well, there's nothing worse, there will be nothing worse than eternal separation from God. That is what literally hell is all about. When we think about this, Zephaniah in the Old Testament, in chapter 1 and 2, he points out to a future called a day of wrath when God will exercise his judgment for all those who have succumbed to the influence of evil, which would be all because we were born with that sin. We also understood earlier that according to Romans 5, 12, and 14, that how did sin enter into the world? It entered through one man. It entered through Adam. And, and every person stands in solidarity with him as by nature, his sin was placed upon every human being who would be born. So we think about this. Take a man who is dead in trespasses and sin, who has followed the course of the world, who does, not, who does what Satan wants, who is under the influence of the source of sin and fulfills the desires of the flesh and you have a man who is right in the center of the target of God's judgment listen to Romans 1.18 it tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men here's what Ephesians 2 1-3 does for us it presents the reality of life apart from Christ It represents the old man, the natural man, the one born with the sin curse. The man who deserves nothing but God's wrath. 
You know, there's an old story out there about a retired man who, in his retirement, moved near a junior high school. Uh, he spends the first few weeks of retirement in peace and quiet. Man, that's what everybody wants in their retirement, right? Peace and quiet. However, when a new school year begins, there, there are three young boys who, who beat on every trash can they encounter every day on their way home from school. Finally, here's what happens. The man decides, okay, man, I, I've got to take some action. He walks out to meet the boys. He says, okay, you kids are a lot of fun. I'll give you each a dollar if you promise to come around every day and do your thing. Man, I needed a neighbor like that. The kids continued, and they do a bang-up job on those trash cans. But after a few days, here's what happened. The man tells the kids, this recession's really putting, me a, putting a big dent in my income, and from now on, I'll, I'll only be able to pay you 50 cents to beat on those cans. Man, these noisemakers, man, they're displeased, they, but they accept his offer. All right, 50 cents. A few days later, the, retired approaches them, the retiree approaches them again and says, Look, I haven't received my Social Security check yet. So I'm not going to be able to pay more than 25 cents. Will that be okay? A measly quarter, the drummer explained. If you think we're going to waste our time beating cans around for a corner, you're nuts, man. We quit. (laughs) Man, the youngsters, they were so frustrated with the old man, they gave up their ways as a result. Man, wouldn't it be great? If we could do the same thing with our old man, doesn't it frustrate us? What if there was a way to be able to put off the old man, to be transformed into someone new, into someone different? As we walk through Ephesians 2, here's what happens. We come to verse 4, which starts with two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. You ready for them? But God. Man, can I assure you this morning that according to Scripture, there is not only hope of becoming a new man, but there is a reality of becoming that new man. Moving from death to life, from sinner to saint, from lost to saved, because of two words, but God. You know, God provides hope for each of us. And right here, through Paul, he's doing this. He's reminding the church in Ephesus and all that read this letter, including you and I, that that they once were the old man. But hey, no longer. They once were against God. They were uh, an enemy of God. But hey, hey, no more. He goes on to remind them of who they are now. They are the new man. Boy, this is, this is excellent news, y'all. This is the gospel. This is the testimony of every Christian. And I want to remind you this morning that that this, if if you have a profession of faith, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've repented and placed your faith and trust in him, you are no longer the old man. You are made new by him. That's his promise. That's your testimony. And I want there to be no confusion this morning. It is God who authors that and allows that transformation to take place. And it's because of his power that we're able to experience it. I want you just to take a moment there. I want to do a little exercise with you very quickly. If you'll just, in your chair there, or you're already seated, if you'll just, just close your eyes for a second. I'm not going to throw anything at you. Close your eyes. And I want you to say in the stillness of your heart, repeat those words, but God. All right, open your eyes back up. 
When you said the words, but God, what did your mind go to? When I practice this exercise, it it takes me back to the moment, to the place where I I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It took me back to the moment when as a non-believer, I was a living according to the flesh, and God didn't have any reason to save me, but God. It took me back to the the moments when as a believer, I didn't, and still to this day, sometimes don't understand how many things are going to work out, but God. Man, I love these two words, and and why should we as believers love these two words? Why should they be a part of our testimony? Because they're full of hope, promise, and love. As a matter of fact, Paul doesn't stop with verses 1 through 3. He jumps into verses 4 through 7 very quickly, and here's what he does. He says, I've described the characteristics of the non-believer, the old man. I want to take time here uh, in verses 4 through 7 to describe what the new man looks like, and more importantly, who allowed the old man to become new? He provides for us the realities of life united with Christ, no longer set apart, no longer broken apart due to sin, but instead forgiven of our sin, united with Christ. Verse 4 continues, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And Paul tells us the source of the transformation. He's painted a picture against the the backdrop of hopelessness of non-Christians. He's now presenting heartening news. God's mercy restrains his wrath. He refrains from punishing us even though we are sinners and deserve it. You see, mercy is God's compassion for the helpless that relieves their situation. Now, grace involves God giving believers what they do not deserve. Mercy means that God does not give what is deserved. So why would he do this? I mean, that's a great question. And if you're ever sharing your testimony, you're going to get that question. Man, why, why would God do that? His mercy flows out of his great love for us. He desires to do good for those he loves, not evil. God, however, is merciful to even the worst offenders, worst sinners, and worst lawbreakers. Can I tell you, we put the, the word worst there because once you sinned, you sinned. You can put any sin in there that you want. It's still sin, and it separated you from God. This means that even though he knows our guilt, he doesn't always issue the punishment deserved. Boy, isn't that great news this morning? Romans 5.8 says this, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ still died for us. John 3, 16 and 17, it's plastered all over in every sporting event and everywhere you go, even in this day where where people are trying to move away from God. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Wow. And why, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow evil to happen? These are all great, deep, theological, truthful questions. Can I tell you in the end, it's so that he will be glorified. Because here's the thing. He does love us. He desires for men to come to repentance. And he didn't come here to condemn you because of your sin. He came here to forgive you of your sin. Yet when we reject we remain condemned. You know, God grants us mercy and love that no one else can offer. This is why true change takes place in the life of the believer. 
Man, I want us to understand very quickly, too, just as we begin to share our faith, but also if you're here this morning, God isn't offering, uh, I know you're here, but if you're here and you're, you're asking questions, God isn't offering you self-help. He's not asking, uh, offering you psychological guru fix-it thoughts. That's not what he's doing. He's not even offering your best life now. He's not doing that. He isn't giving you tips so you can make yourself better. He didn't say, hey, George, I want you to make yourself better, so here's some ideas. No, no, no. No, he's offering you a supernatural change to your soul. He he is saying, I will not fix you, but even better, I will transform you. He is forgiving and forgetting the sin and transforming you into his image. This is what mercy and love is that Paul is speaking of. He is not looking at you as the old man who was covered in that, that muck and mireness of sin. No, no, no. He is looking at you now through the washed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to tell us, as the result of God's mercy and grace, he's done three things for us. Listen in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, I'm not going to steal the thunder from next week's uh, preacher that gets to do, by grace you've been saved, all right? We're going to spend some time on 8 through 10. But, but I will tell you this. That's the way we're saved. By nothing in our merit and nothing that we have done, we are undeserving of this grace. Oh, but God saw fit to offer it anyways. We're going to expound upon that next week. So let's get to where we are this week. We are made alive with Christ. Our sins has, had made us spiritually dead. They separated us from God, as you've heard already this morning. And when Jesus raised from the grave, listen to what he did. He overcame death, and because of this, God let us share in Christ's life. In so doing, he caused us no longer to be spiritually alienated from himself, but instead, he allows us to be alive because of that grace. Why did he give us life when we deserved death? Because we earned it not at all. We deserve the death that we got. But because we are made alive in Christ through what Christ did in the resurrection, we are alive with him and because of him. Verse 6 says, and raised us up with him and seated us with uh, him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So raised up with Christ. Life is in Christ came because we experienced Christ's resurrection in the spiritual realm. We were raised up from our sin death and given the opportunity for new life. Now here's the thing. We still face life on earth where Satan reigns and rules. Man, and that, that just stinks. But now we do it. With the power of Christ, being alive with him and raised up with him, seated, as it says, with Christ in heaven at the end of verse 6. He has made it possible and certain our resurrection from the dead and has mysteriously positioned us in heaven where Christ dwells. To be seated with Christ, meaning God considers us worthy and destined to be seated with Christ in heaven when we get there. Listen, God has decided to do it, and it's as good as done, but we just have to wait until it happens. Listen, we're going to share with Christ and his rules of king. We'll be seated on thrones. In fact, we already exercise the power with Christ over the powers of this age. We can live lives reflecting Christ's kingdom. Isn't that what we're called to do? To live lives that are Christ-like and reflect who he is? No longer reflecting the influence of sin, Satan. We are no longer dead in trespasses and sin. We are alive in Christ, sharing his power and authority, representing him in a battle 
with the enemy where victory is assured through the resurrection. We are joint heirs with Christ. But Paul has described to his audience, the old man, the new man, he has reminded them of who they once were, spiritually dead, but now who they are, made alive through Christ. And here's what verse 7 says. So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen, it wasn't just for that moment. His boundless riches of grace. Grace and kindness has been made known through God. It's being made known through God and will continue to be made known. That early church, just like us, they were awaiting the return for Jesus and in that moment, what happens? Man, they, we, we all want it too, and we all think, man, it, it could happen next, because it could. They were thinking the same thing, but Paul's doing here, he's emphasizing that while we're waiting, God riches, God's riches of grace and kindness would be proclaimed for ages to come. God deserves to be glorified and honored. He deserves to be told about and shared to the world in which we live and have influence in. This is going to bring us to our closing point this morning. Every believer, listen this morning, every believer has a testimony just like what has been described in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And because God deserves all the glory for that testimony, we should share it with others to proclaim the wonderful and marvelous grace that God has bestowed upon us and gifted us. So we get to this point, the sharing of your testimony, sharing the reality of what Jesus did for you. Listen, in a, in a recent 2021 survey but through Lifeway and Evangelism Explosion, uh, they surveyed believers, and 50% of believers are comfortable with sharing their faith. 43% are do it if we have to, uh, but very fearful and feeling very unprepared. And other six people, other 6% decided just not to share what they feel. And that's, in, that, that's very interesting. See, in Ephesians, we have, a, we, we have an outline of how to share our faith, to share our testimony. And here's the truth. It's very simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but there's a way that you can go about doing this. When we share our testimony, we are simply telling our story. We are sharing the reality of what Jesus did for us. Just as I shared my father's testimony of, at the opening of the sermon, we are here to share three aspects. Are you ready? Who were you apart from Christ? Who were you apart from Christ? Spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3 tells us that. Following after the lust of the flesh, separated from God for all eternity. When and how did Christ save you? That's the second aspect. Ephesians 2, 4. How do you share that? But God. He saved me when I was 17. He opened up my eyes and heart, and I responded with repentance, faith, and trust. So who was I before I met Christ? Dead in my trespasses, separated from God. When and how did I meet Christ? At 17 years old. I met it through God opening my heart to Him. And who are you now in Christ? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this. You are saved by grace, made alive with Him, united with Him forever, transformed by His Spirit, and you are sharing this great news with anyone who will listen. Folks, sharing your testimony is, is really not an option. It's an opportunity. We don't control who comes to know Christ. We don't even know who that will be. But God does, and he gives us an opportunity. I want to share this with you as we leave. Sir Edwin Landseer was one of the most famous painters of the Victorian era. If you're into art, you probably recognize his name very quickly. 
His talent developed very early, and he had the first showing of his work at the Royal Academy when he was just 13 years old. He was commissioned to do a number of official portraits for the royal family and and even gave private drawing lessons to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. But he was best known for his depictions of the natural settings in animal life in the Scottish Highlands. Now, one day, here's what happened. He was visiting a family in an old mansion in Scotland, and one of the servants was clumsy and and spilt a a pitcher of soda water, leaving a large stain on the wall. Now, while the family was out for the day, Landseer remained behind. Using charcoal, he incorporated the stain into a beautiful drawing. So when the family returned, they found a picture of a waterfall surrounded by trees and animals. He used his skill to make something beautiful out of what had been an unseemly and unsightly mess. I want you to think about that for a second. Boy, isn't that a great picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 7? God works much in the same in our lives. This morning, our lives can be seen as one big sinful stain. A stain caused by sin and unrighteousness, but God sees that stain of sin and unrighteousness as a possible masterpiece. He's simply waiting for the non-believer to repent, to give their life to him through faith. So if this is you this morning, I want you to know out of love, we, we, we desire, we, we hope and pray that, that you will see the truth and place your faith and trust in God, repenting of your sin and submitting to him as the Lord of your life, becoming his masterpiece. Hey, this morning, maybe you're here and you've already you've given your life to Jesus. Will you be reminded of who you are in Christ? As we tie Ephesians 2 and 2 Corinthians 5 together, a masterpiece of God, an ambassador for the kingdom, and a person changed from the old to new with a testimony to share. Can we pray this morning?